The other day, I got our Emerald Bay monthly report schedule of events in the clubhouse and minutes of the board. The lady who made it out knew that Easter is just a hit. So logically, she thought, oh, this is kind of an Easter program, an Easter paper, so I've got to make it look like Easter. Now, if you were going to do that, if you were like the second grade teacher in a public school to put out a little piece of paper about Easter time, what, what would you do to make the kids all interested and excited about it? Probably the same thing this lady did. She got her pen and she drew a little basket and she sketched a lot of graphs in it. And outside of it, she put two or three of the cutest little bunnies hopping around. And walking around with the bunnies were three or four little bitty old cuddly yellow chicks. And in the basket were eggs, but the eggs didn't look like they'd come out. I've never seen a rabbit's egg, have you? Uh, I don't know what a rabbit's egg looks like, but these were not rabbit's eggs, you could tell, because these things had circles all over them. And they had stripes with diamond patterns, kind of like off a rattlesnake's back. Every one of the eggs had an interesting pattern in it, kind of like an old Aggie marble or a bullseye marble that I used to play with when I was a kid, when I would play marbles after school. Now, it was logical doesn't insult your intelligence to get something that obviously is a sign or a symbol or a label that is telling you this is an Easter season announcement. What is a sign? Just rack your brain for a minute and there may be some clues that you would, would want to think about. What is a sign or a symbol that you would want to educate or to teach to, say, a Tagalog or perhaps some of the Maori or some of the people in Papua New Guinea who don't know anything at all about Christianity. But something other than just the doxology or the Apostles' Creed, but something that you could teach to savages and to people who believe perhaps in Buddha or Islam that is a common sign, mark, symbol, or label of the Christian religion. What would be the very first and the most important sign or symbol or label or mark identifying label or symbol of the Christian church that is common to Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Church of Christ, First Christian Church, First Christian Church of Christ Scientists or whatever it is, uh, the Mormon Church, the all the churches, uh, Catholic Church. What is a, a common sign? Are there any clues anywhere? Does, do you have a, does a thought enter your mind? Is there any kind of a common sign? Have you ever seen a movie where they're really extolling the Catholics? Now, they've even got a nighttime soap. I cannot stand soaps. Not during the day, not at night. They call them soap for short because originally they called a soapbox opera, which indeed they are. Now they got one that has father somebody. And it's this old Catholic priest and a whole host of people, and they're on it. I wouldn't watch that at the point of a bayonet, but that's just my personal taste. I just can't stand the fact that Hollywood has always extolled and exalted and held up for great honor and respect from the days of old Spencer Tracy and Bing Crosby, the Roman Catholic Church. But how many movies have I seen? Where there is some demon or Count Dracula or somebody intent like some bat trying to suck somebody's blood. And here's the priest or here's the old man or here's the frightened kid. And they grab this cross made of silver or something, all decorative. And they hold it up in front of this attacking, satanic, weird critter. And they just fade back. Ah! 
away from this cross. Sometimes they disappear like a blob of jelly. They just dematerialize or they just die on the spot. I've literally seen it. I've seen movies all my life that portray the priestly type holding up this sign, this symbol of the cross in front of evil, and the evil recoils away from it. That's the most common sign, I think. Wouldn't you say that that's fair? What is the second most common sign immediately behind the cross of the so-called Christian religion in general that you would teach to this poor guy down in Papua New Guinea or a Maori from New Zealand? Would you think it would be the doxology? Well, a lot of people, even in the so-called Christian church, don't really know that too well. they got to read it to this day, although they do stand up and sing it. The Apostles' Creed. Well, not many of them recite that too often anymore, except in the real formal ceremonies of Catholic and Anglican churches. So probably you would say it is a particular day of the week, wouldn't you? You would say that right behind the sign of the cross, and maybe actually ahead of it, I don't know, maybe you'd put Sunday ahead of that, would be the fact that they all go to church on Sunday. Now, Sunday is a symbol of something. Sunday is a shadowy type of something in the Christian church, is it not? Sunday is the type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because they insist that he was raised on a Sunday. But Easter is that Sunday of all Sundays, in a sense, because it's the one day of the year when the resurrection of Christ is observed at sunrise, and of course there's another common denominator, common symbol, common label or sign that is spread right across the entirety, generically, of the so-called Christian church. In the book of Exodus, the twelfth chapter, if you will turn to that, God began to give instructions to the ancient Israelites, ancient, well, they were young people and kids and so on who were thinking of, you know, back in history. That he was to tell them, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every day a lamb. By the way, what day is it? Is this Thursday? No, it's not. Somebody would remind me. How many times have I asked, what is the date? I'm at a supermarket checkout stand. Well, what's the date today? I do forget the date. Isn't that crazy? I forget a date. But I never forget what day of the week it is. Now, on an occasion, I've even done that. I got busy, I lost track, and I'm momentarily confused. I can think for myself, probably, and in just a few moments, I can figure out it's either Thursday or Wednesday or Tuesday or Sunday or what. But... Normally, you don't forget what is the day of the week. Have you ever forgotten which day of the week it was? I bet you have. I bet if I asked for a showing of hands, nearly everybody at one time or another thought, is this Tuesday or Wednesday? And they just don't know. How long did it take you to find out? 30 seconds, 5 seconds, you ask your mate, right? What day is this, honey? It's Wednesday. Where you been? You know, I mean, it's easy. You can be in the checkout stand of the supermarket. Well, what day is this? It's Wednesday. You crazy? It's easy, isn't it? Now, when was there a time where a person lost track of whether it was Wednesday or Thursday and said, what day is this? The guy next to him said, I don't know, what day is it? The guy next to them, I don't know, what day is it? And throughout the entire society, nobody knew. Now, is that credible to your mind? Is that credible to your mind? How do you know? I want to ask you, how do you know today is Saturday or the Sabbath? How do you know? I would be willing to make a bet, although I'm not supposed to be a betting man, that not a one of you got up this morning and looked at a calendar to find out what day it was. You have known all week what day it was. You have known since last Sabbath what day it was. 
Basically, you've known all year without ever looking at a calendar. Now, some of you may work in an office, you may be a secretary, you may be an executive, you may have a little calendar or a, a desk calendar right there in front of you, tearing the pages off. Mr. Dart has a very good one, it's got little jokes on it, some of them are hilarious. Little desktop calendar. So we never forget what day it is in Mr. Dart's office, because we're always anxious to see what is the joke today. A little uh, scrawled, scribbled cartoon that is absolutely hilarious. But you see where I'm going with this, I hope. Many people argue time was once upon a time lost, and that everybody in the entire world forgot what day it was. Does that really appeal to your sense of logic in your own day-to-day -day experience? No, it does not. It just does not. To the Jews were given what the New Testament calls the oracles of God. Jesus said, not some evangelist, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The keepers of the sacred records, the keepers of the Ten Commandments, of the scroll called the Torah, of the original stone urn with a sample of manna in it, of the Ark of the Covenant with all of its sacred relics, the keepers of the law, the keepers of the writings and the psalms, as they were called, or the prophets and the writings or the psalms, were the scholars of the temple who were Levites. They were given the responsibility of preserving the awareness of time because God had said from the very earliest beginnings of his communication with humankind, with his interfacing with the human family, today is the Sabbath of the eternal your God. In it you shall do no work, and so on. At the time of the Israelitish exodus, which is shortly after this event we're about to read of in the twelfth chapter, he said to look back to the days of the patriarchs and to remember the Sabbath day, to keep, preserve it holy. So he said, in the tenth day of this month, chapter 12, verse 3 of the book of Exodus, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if a household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto the house take it according to the number of the souls or individuals, and that's the way that word is used there. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb was to be unblemished, the male of the first year, take it out of the sheep or from the goats. We tend to forget that, but a goat would have been fine. A young kid of a goat would have been just as efficacious. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. He was very specific on his days here, wasn't he? The tenth day. You keep it for four days, the fourteenth day. Why? Was that because it was to be separate from the flock? Was that because of a four-day period to make sure there was no blemish that would show up? What was the purpose of that? There had to be very, very profound purposes for it. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, or as we know it says, between the two evenings, which is explained thoroughly in my booklet on Is the Passover for Christians. They were to take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses. The way to do that was to take the blood, take a little branch of what was called hyssop, which is like a thick, uh, I should say, a thick piece of sagebrush, dip it into a basin filled with blood, and just kind of strike it the way you would a broom on each side of the doorpost and on the lintels of the windows. Then they were to eat it indoors, to eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. The unleavened bread, believe it or not, had two important symbols. Eat not of it raw, or sodden at all with water, but roast with fire. Important. 
his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof, and you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. So if you've ever seen pictures in the movies or even attended a big old Texas barbecue where they got the entire calf or the entire young goat on a spit and somebody's slowly turning it over a fire, that's the picture you have here, the entire animal. Eviscerated, completely cleaned, of course, the hide off and everything, but the entire animal was to be roasted. You shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And this is the way you're to eat it with your loins girded, because they wore different clothing than we do. So they took the long skirt-like portion of their garment and tucked it into a thick leather belt, gathered it up around the leg, just the way we would wear a bathing suit, to where the man's legs and part of the middle of the thigh and the knees and so on were exposed to where he could run if he had to. Your shoes on your feet. That was a really strange custom, because in the Orient, which in fact this was, in the Middle East, which in same custom to this day in Arab uh, homes, I can attest to because I've been in several of them, and of course in Japan, in the Orient, you take your shoes off when you go indoors. There is always a foyer or at least some kind of an outdoor stoop of some kind, and you would see a whole bunch of shoes out there. And then you kick them off and you put on a little kind of a slipper or else in your stocking feet or your bare feet and you walk indoors. So you'll track a lot of mud indoors. Very good custom. Too bad we Americans don't do that. We just go clomping into the, in the drug, you know, with mud, who knows what else we got on our feet. They didn't do it that way. So to be told to eat indoors with your shoes on was unusual. They were to eat with their shoes on and with their staff in their hand. Now the first thing an older person would do, and sometimes a staff I suppose could be the symbol of a village elder, but more than likely it was like a walking stick. It was to take care of a snake with, or a stray dog, or a wayward widow, whatever it was, you know. But a guy is walking along, and he's got a big staff in his hand, and uh, he's able to protect himself. I'm just kidding, you know that. But anyway, he had a staff in his hand, because they used a, a walking stick, like a cane. So if they were to stand there with their shoes on their feet, their staff in their hand, and you're to eat it hastily, as if you are in a hurry, it is the Eternal's skip over. I'm going to read that differently on purpose on purpose. It is the Eternal's pass on by. It's the Eternal's I will omit you. You know, I mean, you've got to get across the idea that this is not just a word that means it's a strange ceremony, but it has a tremendous significance to it. Now, I am incensed every time I see what I saw this morning on national news when there is a man who brutally gunned down two young teenage boys a few years ago in order to get their car to commit an armed robbery. He needed a car. So he accosted them, and he was about to kill them, holding the gun at them, and one of the boys began to cry. He said, shut and die like a man, bang, and brutally murdered him. He then robbed some establishment, and he was caught. The two policemen who caught him, one of them happened to be the father of the young man who had cried and begged and pled for his life. Didn't even know it. Didn't even know that a murder had been committed until later when they got to questioning this guy about the robbery. And then they found out. They took this rotten, filthy killer to trial. And they tried it. And a jury of his peers 
on the basis of all the evidence, of which there was plenty, ballistics, tests, everything proved that they'd murdered the boy. The gun was there. The bullet was in the two boys. It matched the gun. I mean, the forensic evidence was there. The jury absolutely convicted these two and said they're going to get the death sentence out in the state of California. I think four times already, some appellate court or another, or a governor at the last moment on the basis of some appeal, some new little technical something, has overturned it. Now, some of you may have seen that in the morning news on CNN News just this morning, as I did. Now it's going to the state Supreme Court once again. Or was it the Supreme Court of the United States? But it's a Supreme Court. Maybe the U.S. Supreme Court is going to that. I don't know. Even the uncle of the murderer was protesting about the ridiculousness of changing this all the time with some minor little technicality. Now, the point I want to make is that they showed this young man who was yellow-eyed, who murdered two people. They showed his wife blubbering and bawling and crying about how much it meant to her that he was spared temporarily and, oh, she wants him to live. I want to ask you, what importance would it be to you to receive a sign? You know, when they're over in the Vatican and they mix the smoke to make it either gray or black in their cloistered voting to find out who is the new pope, they determine by the color of the smoke what's going on inside. The ancient Roman emperors used to determine the life of a gladiator or someone out in the arena as to how he achieved or acquitted himself against wild animals by either a thumbs up, let him live, or thumbs down, kill him. If you were under a sentence of death and you knew tonight you are going to die, now there's one way you can prevent it. Kill a lamb paint his blood on your doors and your windows, roast his flesh, have your shoes and your cloak about you and your cane in your hand, and get inside your house with your family and eat that Passover, or else you die. Now, I'm asking, do you think that this was a usual, I mean, everybody was really into the mood of things, right? Oh, man, we're going to have a religious ceremony. Hey, we're going to have a church meeting here. Let's get the picture, shall we? We're talking about people who had witnessed, though in the land of Goshen the plagues did not touch them individually or in their homes, but they had witnessed it. We're talking about people who now for weeks and weeks had seen practically all the cattle of Egypt piled up in gigantic, stinking, fetid heaps with billions of flies buzzing around and clouds that practically blotted out the sun. We're talking about plagues of locusts, plagues of fleas, and vermin of every kind, rats running around. We're talking about the rivers and the bays and estuaries, the entire Nile River turned to thick, pudding-like, rotting, stinking blood. These people had seen every bit of that with their own eyes. They'd experienced it. Now they had been told, the death angel is abroad tonight. He has a slaughtering weapon in his hand. And he is going to kill the firstborn in every home in this land. The only way to spare your beloved son, your uncle, your brother, your father, yourself, is to slay that lamb and to paint that door with its blood. It's not just a religious service. It is survival. It is their life that is at stake. It was every bit as important to them as the sobbing, blubbering woman I heard interviewed this morning who wants her husband to live, 
and the sobbing, outraged, heartbroken parents, loved ones of the victims who want him to die. Because these are high-tension, high-drama incidents when something like that occurs. Well, I get a letter that says, or it was a phone call, I guess, there's a bomb, Garner Ted is going to die. I can laugh it off, sure, because everybody that's in the public eye gets death threats. I'm aware of that. I've had them before. I was once told at one of the peace sites up the Lake of the Ozarks when I was flying up in there in a jet that a man was lurking around somewhere with a gun trying to kill me. I remember when I got on the G2 to fly it out of there, Ed Black wanted to get me out of that door real quick and get me back out of sight so they couldn't see me. So I've lived with that before. But I do take it seriously, and I have to confess that when a thick letter comes in, I want to look at it make sure it's got adequate postage, make sure it's addressed from someone I know, make sure it's only paper inside, very careful the way I handle it, and we have a little notice to all of our people picking up the mail, so they're careful. Because it's true, he's right, Ron Ted Armstrong is going to die. i got no quarrel with that. But I don't think it's going to be by his hand. I don't think God's going to allow that. But now you see, if I'm sitting around my house in an evening, as I used to in 1979 when I knew what was at stake, and I would get up with a kind of a funny feeling and say, I don't know if I want to be sitting here in this chair right in front of this lighted window with this 700 acres out here of open land around me, I'd get up and draw the drape because I had this funny feeling. It was nonsense. I shouldn't have worried about it. And then I read something in the newspaper, so whenever I went out at night, I decided, no, I don't need to pick up the mail tonight. I'll wait and get it in the morning. You may not know what I'm talking about. I think some of these uh, weird cultists, somebody put a rattlesnake in their mailbox one time, and a fellow reached in there and slam. And I think they saved the man. I don't know, but those things occurred to me. So I try to take it easy, try to be careful. I've never committed a crime that I know about that would have landed me in jail, never been under a sentence of death, so far as the civil society is concerned. But I am perfectly well aware of the fact that I and you have committed sins which have placed us under the sentence of death. Now there is a sign that is to be put on us which will cause God's death angel, his avenging angel, to skip on over our house, to go on around our house, to omit our house, to pass on by our address. In Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, we read of that. And because if you don't read up you know, to it, and I won't take time to do all of that through the eighth chapter, you really don't get the entire picture. And believe it or not, in the eighth chapter, you see Easter depicted. I'll get just that little bit of it because some of the greatest abominations that he was seeing as Ezekiel was taken by spirit, a lock of his head, between the earth and the heaven and brought in visions of God to Jerusalem with the door of the inner gate that looks toward the north and there was the seat of the image of jealousy to provoke the jealousy. And he sees these creeping things, that's verse 10 of chapter 8, portrayed on the walls thereabout, the signs of the zodiac. What were they? They were the work of the artist. They were the work of the sculpture or sculptor, rather. They were the work of the artisan in metal or wood or ceramics. They were carvings. They were displayed in a public area. When I would go to the Civic Auditorium in Pasadena, California, all around the walls were the signs of the Zodiac, the Crab, Leo the Lion, you know, on and on, all over the place, the signs of the Zodiac. Here were the symbols, signs, of all kinds of pagan gods. Phallic symbols, symbols involving sexual fecundity and reproduction, symbols that conjured up ideas about sex, 
and life, where it came from, all over the wall. And then he said in verse 12, you see what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? It was always nice to have it dark. Let's get it dark, get it just as dark as it can be, light just a few guttering, flickering candles around, make it real gloomy, kind of enhances the environment, you know, to have it dark. So when you go into a bar, it's not brightly lit like this church building. It's dark. You know, you want a real dark. So they always did it in the dark. Every man in the chambers of his imagery, for they say, the eternal sees us not. God has forsaken the earth. He's gone way off into the blackness of the outer limits of the universe, and he's not really concerned. He says, turn yet again, and you shall see greater abominations that they do. So he came to the door of the gate of the eternal's house toward the north, and there were women weeping for Nimrod, which is Tammuz. So he is a pagan god, the first great hunter, the first great organizer of the city-state. Now do you see this, old man? Turn yet again, and you will see greater abominations than these. And he brought me to the inner court of the eternal's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the porch, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men. Now here we're right inside the, alt the area of the altar of the temple of God, with their backs toward the temple of the eternal, which was the place where the sacred vessels I talked about, the Ark of the Covenant, and the paraphernalia that had to do with the worship of the true God that was administered by the Levitical priesthood, including the original Ten Commandments, the second set, first set was broken, but the original Torah, the little jar that contained the manna, uh, manna the uh, rod of Aaron that had budded, with their backs toward the temple of the eternal, and their faces toward the east, and they worshiped the sun toward the east. That was a sunrise service. The only time the sun is in the east is at sunrise. And by the way, Tammuz is found throughout the Nordic races as the symbol of Taurus, the bull. The bull is a symbol that was attached to the Nordics. The Vikings wore bulls, horns, and heads, and Britain is called John Bull. Actually, the word boats or boon, B-O-U-N, is the Anglo-Saxon precursor of bun. The word bun doesn't come from some other English word that means spongy or light or cinnamon or anything else, but from an old word that meant a bull oxen which is one of the faces of the Caribbean, because they worship the symbol of Tammuz or Nimrod, or of course the symbol of Taurus. We name our automobiles after them anymore. You can buy a Ford Taurus if you wish. Is this a light thing to Judah, verse 17, that they commit the abomination that they commit here? Now because of that, he said, I will deal, verse 18. Isn't this strange? You think people that observe Easter, that observe all the symbolism that commonly right across the generic of mainstream fundamental religion that is called Christianity, wear the sign and the symbol of the cross, wear the sign and the symbol of Sunday, of Easter, and Halloween, and Christmas, or the Mass of Christ. Do you think they're embarrassed by it? Do you think they think it is evil? Well, we know better. That is so down home, so folksy, so nostalgic, so harmless, it's as friendly as your favorite picture box in Grandma's house with the snapshots when you were all kids, isn't it? It's just absolutely comfortable thoughts about Easter and Christmas. Now, this was not something that these people were ashamed of. The Word of God says, Behold, they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Did you see two weeks ago the cover of Time magazine? Two male hands clasped. One of the letters from one of those saucy so-called closet queens who ought to go back into the closet, but he's out. 
was talking about how he thought it was abominable that they couldn't hold hands in public. Well, of course, some of them do worse than that in public. But he thought it ought to be just casual and common that a couple of queers could walk along the street holding hands. And then this morning on news, I saw that live-in couples are now beginning to sue and to make action, you know, legal action, litigation against some corporations and companies and so on because of discriminatory practices involving some purchases or having to do with whether it's real estate or some federal or state or county agency or whatever it may be. And there are certain clubs and so on and certain like airlines that give you a certain ticket and I think there was a, a case that came up and they were arguing about because somebody had earned all these miles. And it says your spouse can go too. See, I do that when I fly commercial. I can earn so many miles. And after I earn so many, that's one of their come on, you know, to pay these fares. They will give you a trip free. And my wife can go because the airline says, or your spouse can go. Well, this was just a live-in. In fornication, without benefit of sanction of the JP or the courts or God. Just living together, you know, like animals. And of course, they pointed out that about 40% of American families are doing that today. That it's so common that anymore people will allow youngsters to live in together in their own home, for pity's sake. They declare their sin as Sodom, they hide it not. And God says here, mine eye shall not spare. That's harsh language, isn't it? Neither will I have pity. At a moment when you're crying for your life, there's one thing you want. That's pity. I mean, that's what the tears are all about. That's why you can't even get your breath. That's why your sobbing's hard. You can't even get the words out. Oh, spirit, I don't want to die. You know? Oh, have pity. Too late. There's certain things that bring about an attitude in God where God says, I will not have pity. I cannot imagine myself, can't imagine myself ever killing another human being. It is impossible for me to imagine. And yet, if somebody asked me to be the one to pull the switch of that individual who killed those two young boys, or some Satanist who dismembered and butchered that kid down in Matamoros, or you can just go on like Ted Bundy, who may have killed 120 young women, one after the other by every bizarre butchery that you can begin to imagine. Somebody said, Ted, would you like to put the plug in the wall? Would you like to pull the switch? Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. It wouldn't, it wouldn't bother me in the least. I don't know why that is. I guess I'm just twisted somehow. I guess I'm just terribly twisted. But somehow, there is something that says that God has come to the point in his dealing with human beings where there is no more pity. And yet you can read in the Psalms that his mercy endures forever and ever. How do you reconcile those two? You reconcile them with a word called repentance and the blood of Jesus Christ. When a person repents, when he does not declare his sin as Sodom, when he does not go before a court and say, I want to marry a man, when he does not go before a court and say, my Libyan and I, who are not married but merely out here committing fornication, want equal treatment under the law with all these nice middle-class families out here. They declare their sin as Sodom. And then when they declare their sin with all the pagan paraphernalia and symbolism of Satan the devil and the rotten, filthy, you know, 
mystery religion, as it's called, searching for that word in Revelation, the uh, 17th chapter, God says, Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Now we see in the ninth chapter, he cried in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. Now this is the city of Jerusalem where we've seen all these abominations, and by extrapolation it really should be applied to all of the nation of the house of Israel. And he has a destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, like a large sword. One man among them was clothed with linen. He went along as if he was the official in charge of this squad of men with all these huge, big, long, double-edged, gleaming, bright swords. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called the man clothed with linen, a typical sign of a priest, someone of official priesthood, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Eternal said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. What a different attitude. Pride, on the one hand. Gladness. Hauteur. They declare their sin of Sodom. They hide it not. Gleeful, rejoicing, down-home nostalgia, as comfortable as the pictures on the piano, remembrances of Christmas and Easter and all the symbols of the crabs and a half-man, half-wild ox and centaurs and unicorns and so on, and Easter bunnies and eggs and Christmas trees and symbols of fertility and the impudent needle that points to the skies on the roof of most church buildings. Isn't it interesting that God has allowed us to find a lovely one that has virtually none of those symbols? Very, very few. A couple right here, but look at the windows over there. Nothing. And this could be taken to be the old silver wheel. I don't think that's intended. It's merely a, a kind of a symbol up here, but I'm not really sure that it's even an obscure symbol of the cross. You can argue that it is, you can argue that it isn't, but it's not really pagan all by itself, is it? It's interesting, there is no needle pointing to the sky on this building. I think it's interesting. I, I appreciate that. But you know what that needle means? Well, I won't go into gross detail. It's very much more obvious in Eastern Europe than it is here in the United States. But if you'll just look it up, I got a book on my credenza called The History of the Symbols of the World. And it gives you the history of the phallic symbol, which is Cleopatra's needle and the Washington Monument, because George Washington was called the pater or the father of our country. So I suppose it's appropriate that the Washington Monument is shaped the way it is. God says that that symbolism, that mark, that label, that sign that is commonly spread throughout what is generically called Christianity is as pagan as it can possibly be. Now, in the 15th and 16th chapters of Revelation, I won't turn back to that because I have an entire booklet on it and I've preached about it before, you see that the picture of the resurrected saints standing before Christ at his second coming on that sea of glass are those who have, quote, gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over the number of his name, over the mark of the beast. When and where and how in your lifetime have you done that? Have you gotten the victory over the beast? A lot of you think, well, there isn't any beast right now. He hasn't come yet. Well, of course he has. Many times. There were many of those governments in the past 
and eventually they became, quote, Christianized by an apostate church and the so-called holy Roman beast, which is really what it was, held sway over the entire so-called world of Christianity and saddled it, branded it, labeled it, manacled it to its symbolism, which is the sign of the cross, Sunday, and its authorized church holiday. Now, what is the only sign Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Think of the word sign. Remember on the occasion, I won't turn and read it, but it's in the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew and has a great deal to do with the Passover. Because they came to him seeking a sign, and he said, There shall no sign be given to this evil generation but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah the prophet was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the tomb. There is not one Sunday-keeping church on the face of this earth, including the Roman Catholic Church, who will admit that Jesus Christ was exactly three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They say two nights and one day, from Friday sunset to Sunday morning. And they argue that there's an idiom, an idiomatic expression. The Hebrew, the Hebrew of the book of Jonah is not an idiomatic expression. And we can go through that, but it's all very thoroughly and carefully explained in my booklet on the Passover, is it for Christians? And you can, of course, take a look at that. Isn't it interesting that Jesus said the only sign of his true messiahship had to do with the events concerning the Passover, his death, the length of time that it would be in the tomb, and the time of his resurrection. The length of time in the tomb was all important, the time of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Now here is this writer with the inkhorn, going about making a mark a symbol, a sign, an identifying label of some kind, as if it was with indelible ink, or India ink as we call it, the Eternal said, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for the, all the abomination to be done in the midst thereof. In other words, these are converted people, people of correct, just, godly values, people who know the precious worth and value of human life people who respect the precious, lovely, God-ordained institution of marriage, people who respect deeply the property and the rights of other people, people who stand for goodness and decency and honesty and fairness and equality and justice, all the laudatory symbols that are used in every civil club and, and every government from Khomeini to, to Gaddafi but most of whom never live up to it. But these are people who are converted to the point that the horrifying things around them actually make them groan and break out into tears and turn away heartbroken at the evil they see around them. What a difference between those who exult in the dark in their imagery and enter into with both hands greedily the pagan conduct of this world, this environment that is so powerful around us. God dealt with a great deal of symbolism, tremendous amount of typology in the Word of God. Think of all the ones you can think about in connection with the Passover. Egypt was a type of what? You know, sin, wasn't it? Egypt was a type of sin. What did Pharaoh stand for? You're ahead of me. Satan the devil. The two magicians, Janus and Jane Breeze, were there to continually battle with Moses and Aaron. Moses, on the one hand, stands as a symbol for God the Father and Aaron as Christ. 
On the other hand, because Aaron was the chief one of the entire tribe of Levi, and therefore in a sense the very first priest, because before the priesthood was ever ordained, Aaron was given that responsibility alongside Moses. Moses was the one through whom God gave the law. So he is a type of Christ in that sense. But also they went before continually, Janus and Jambri, saying, let my people go. So they're in a sense shadowy symbols of the two witnesses who are to come. And, of course, there are many, many other types that you're very well aware of. The Lamb, we're aware of that. We're aware of the fact that when they were pursued, as they're about to come out of Egypt, that Satan and his minions will try to keep you in his world and pursue you. That it took the waters of baptism, 1 Corinthians 10, says they passed under the cloud and they were all passed through the sea, and that these things that happened unto them were examples for us upon whom the ends of the world are come. And we know that their journey through the bottom of the Red Sea, dry shod, was a symbol of our Christian baptism. And we also know that their journey in the, in the land of sin, Sinai, or Sinai, for 40 years, that the number 40 is a sign of testing or of trial, that that was a sign of the entire testing or the trial of this life. The fact that they existed on manna, which is bread from heaven, showed that they existed on heavenly food, not human-grown food. The fact that they were sojourners and never allowed to stop and plant and reap crops showed that they were just temporary pilgrims and sojourners in that land to enter into the promised land, which is a symbol of what? The kingdom of God. And the Jordan River is a symbol of the death of the old human being and, of course, the resurrection of the new. And why did God cause or allow the older generation to die in their carcasses, as he said, to rot in the wilderness, and only the young generation under Joshua to enter the promised land? Again, deep typology. So in the holy days of God, the holy season of God, are tremendous lessons to be learned, and every lesson you learn is good. Every lesson is important to your life. Every lesson is something you can teach your children. It's something that leaves you with a clean conscience. It's something that educates you, that enlightens the soul, so to speak. What do you learn about the symbolism when a lady sits down to send me an Easter message because they're going to give out the club schedule for the month of April when I see eggs and little chicks and little rabbits hanging out of baskets? What do we learn, even though it's as comfortable as the family picture box? Nothing. But people argue, what's so wrong about all of this? It's all Christianized. We know that pagans used to do that. We know that, that pagans had those symbols, but, but we don't do it that way anymore. Oh, well, there happens to be an answer for that in the Word of God. When you go in and dispossess these nations, he said, don't ask now, how did they worship their God? We will do the same. We'll worship our God, which is the true God, but we'll worship him in the way that they worshiped all of their pagan gods. And then he said those that did that were to be put to death. So here you have symbolism. On the one hand, pagan, and God says he hates it, and says slay utterly both young and old. Notice what he says, and try to imagine this. Verse 5. He said, in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city, that is, after the rider with the acorn, after he's completed his work. How important is his work? Does the writer say anything? Does the writer knock on every door? Does the writer with the inkhorn give everybody an opportunity? He's seen the swords. He knows the martial military skills of the fellows coming behind him, all six of them with the sharp swords. He knows it's going to include little kids. Is the writer filled with any sense of responsibility? Does he want to talk to these families? Well, sure he does, because he is the very symbol of all of God's prophets. 
and he's the symbol of Christ himself, and he is the symbol, I dare to venture, of God's work and of God's church. Because those who are calling people who are sinners to conversion are those who are causing them to receive what is called spiritual circumcision, are receiving the only mark, the only stamp or label or sign that God ever gave to his true people and himself, which is the Sabbath, Exodus 31, and the mark or the sign that Jesus left, which is the understanding of his death. And this world does not know who or what Jesus was, how he was born, whether or not he was a Jew, when he was born, don't know why he came, don't understand what his message was, do not understand how he died, the method of his death, many of them, including some mainstream churches, will argue with you until you're blue in the face, are not even sure he was all the way dead, but think he was down in hell preaching to departed spirits, don't know that he was dead, don't know how long he was in the tomb, reject the only sign he gave that he is the true Messiah, and don't know on the day in which he was resurrected, and have the faintest idea what he's been doing ever since. As I've said for years, when you don't know that much about somebody, it doesn't sound to me like you know him. How can you not know that much about somebody and claim, isn't it nice to know the Lord? When they've actually rejected the true Jesus Christ and utterly worship a different false Jesus that is a figment of the imagination of Satan the devil and never walked this earth in the first place. So he says, slay utterly old and young, maids and little children and women. Isn't that pitiful? But God says, I won't pity. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary, because that's the place where the rottenness is the most obscene and the biggest affrontery to God right at his own sanctuary. And isn't it crazy that that's where some of the worst things seem to happen? The closer you get to God's true church, it seems. I cannot believe that people will actually recoil away from the truth of God, and less than one year later they'll have a Christmas tree in their house. It just boggles my mind. And the minute they do, they, they rebel, they will go right back into a Sunday-keeping, Sunday-labeled world and become a part of it, where they had been dragged out of the world. And just like Peter wrote, it happened, the sow returns, it was washed, you know, to the trough and wallow in it, or the dog turns again to its own vomit. And those that have once been enlightened and have tasted the good things of the life to come and have turned back, to them there is no more remission. It could well be that some of those people have or are in an ongoing sense committing the unpardonable sin because they know better, but they just pick a little excuse and toy with it and get mad and point at a human being at some human failing or imagined human problem and then try to justify leaving the truth of God and rejecting his sign. Begin at my sanctuary. And they began at the ancient men before the house. They began just hacking them down with a sword. And he said, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. You can read the rest of it. But that is a symbol of the coming tribulation. It is also harking back to the day of the original Passover when the avenging death angel killed the firstborn in all the land of Egypt but came not near any house on which the blood of the lamb had been spread. God's work today is the work of the watchman, the work of the man in the linen with the writer's acorn, the work of witness and warning, the work of preaching the truth of God to convict and to convert people, not only because it is good for them, 
not only because they will receive blessings, not just because it would be nice if our church grew, not just because it would be nice to have a congregation of 200 and a choir, some youth programs, and nice things going on, but because if we don't, they are going to die without mercy, piteously crying and begging for their lives, and there will be none to hear. The Passover was not just some religious service those people entered into in the same alacrity and fun as little kids embrace Easter. It was deadly, serious business. If somebody said, Henry, are you sure the blood is on the door? Martha, I put it there myself. Would you go look again? Let's go together. I want to check. I can imagine any number of Hebrew families checking very carefully to make sure the blood really shows up. Can't you? I would have been unsparing in the amount of blood I would want it, have wanted on my door on that particular night. And so it is that we need to realize that if we are in a struggle against the beast, the image of the beast, the number of his name and his mark, we are not in a struggle which is yet going to occur at some future time when all of these things called the beast, the image of the beast, and the mark of the beast, and the number of his name will suddenly become evident and we will finally understand what they are. Not when God says in the word of God, they cry out symbolically, how long will we turn over do not judge our blood? And he says that they must rest a little season until their fellow servants must be killed as they were. Why were they killed? Because they refused to worship the beast or to receive his mark. The mark of a true Christian is first and primarily the blood of Christ to bury and to cover his sins, to forgive him. And immediately behind that, believe it or not, is keeping God's seventh-day Sabbath. And together with that, the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, the annual Holy Days of God, which are the only common signs, common symbols, the understanding of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the exact period of time it took, which is the only sign he gave, which can be the reality that is being concealed by the counterfeit. Every counterfeit that Satan the devil has ever invented is there for the purpose of concealing the reality. The reality is the Sabbath. The counterfeit is Sunday. The reality is Passover with all of its rich typology. And the counterfeit is Easter. The reality, anciently, was understood to have been conception. And that which conceals it is called Christmas. And there are plenty more just like it. The depth of understanding that God has given all of you the education, the elucidation, the enlightenment, the awareness of vast truths that are so precious that they're beyond any kind of monetary value are so rare that you are literally one out of millions of human beings living in complete and total darkness in this world. And I sometimes wonder if we recognize not only the value to ourselves, but the tremendous responsibility that that information, that knowledge, places upon us to be like the man with the writer's inkhorn, to make a mark on those people who can find it within them to sigh and cry for the abominations around them in this world.